It is good to be here with you. I feel like I have personally had been traveling a lot recently, and the last couple of weeks there's been different times where I've been away, not from here necessarily on a Sunday morning, except for two weeks ago I was. On Sunday morning I was with our students. We took a group of about 50 from our church to join with others at a retreat in northern Indiana called the Collide Winter Retreat, and we had a wonderful time there. Uh, so many good things happened at that retreat that were good for us and for our students, and any time we get away, it's a wonderful time. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that was probably one of my highlights was actually on Sunday morning, we had a gap in our schedule from 10.30 to noon, um, and we pulled together and actually watched and joined you here uh, through the live stream as a group, and that was fantastic to, to watch students counting down out loud as the service started, clapping and cheering. We were singing along with the worship songs rather than just watching passively. It was, it was a wonderful experience to be connected back here and back home. But after that retreat, as you know, at any time you travel or have a retreat situation like that, the exhaustion is real and you're tired. And so after that retreat, I came home, got the vans returned, got home, and then um, football was on and I sat down on the couch and watched football one final game that day and fell asleep on the couch, which, as my wife will attest, I often do, not just after retreats, but just fall asleep on the couch, and then wake up middle of the night and stumble my way upstairs to bed. Uh, that happens more than I'd care to admit. But on this time, I fell asleep, and it was about 5 a.m. when I woke up this time. And I had been sleeping pretty solidly, but I was still pretty tired. Now, for some of you, five o'clock's when you're waking up and starting your day. Um, that's not me. That's not this youth pastor. I am, that's the middle of my night. And so as I got up, I made my way upstairs, and I couldn't see very well because I have contact lenses. And I shouldn't sleep with them, but on this time, I certainly did sleep with them in. And I woke up, and if you've had contact lenses, you know what your eyes feel like, or you can try to imagine when you have something in your eye, your eyes get dry, they stick to your eyes, it's blurry, you can't see. And so I fumbled my way upstairs to the bathroom, and my little toiletry bag was sitting right there, and I was rifling through it to find my small little bottle of saline solution, because I knew right where I left it. And I pull it out, and I begin to put the saline in my eyes, seeking relief, so that not only could they stop being dry, but I could see again. And so I, I dropped, I went to put a drop in, and nothing came out. <clears throat> And I was like, what is going on? So I squeezed a little harder, which is not normal, because normally it just runs right out. And I squeezed a little harder, and finally a drip came out, and my eye suddenly felt wonderful. It was great. It was refreshing. It was cool. So I got it in the other eye. And I still couldn't see yet, but I rubbed it in. I made sure it was working. My eyes were feeling good. And then I opened my eyes, and I couldn't see anything. I was looking through basically a white, filmy, gunky, gooey mess. And I looked down and I tried to like look at what, I, what did I put in my eyes. And it was a lightly scented hand and body lotion. <laughs> the same size bottle, the same shape. I don't know why I had that in my bag. I didn't use it. But I used it in this moment to put it in my eye and I couldn't see anything. My eyes were gunky. I, I, I wiped them off. I cleared them off. At this point, I take my contacts out. I clean them out, put them away, store them. I find my saline. I use that, clean them up really good, put my glasses on and go to bed. It was, I couldn't believe what I was doing and I couldn't see anything at that point because I had put the wrong thing 
into my eye. Now, my eyes felt pretty good. It wasn't a fragrance that stung my eyes or anything. They were lightly scented and very moisturized. And my eyes felt pretty good. When I woke up, it was probably the best my eyes ever felt. But it was the wrong thing, and it was certainly the wrong thing for seeing. You see, we know what it's like when you can't see something. It's really hard to function. It's really hard to live in such a way when you expect to see and you can't see or when you expect something's going to help you see and it doesn't help you see. It's important. Seeing ourselves for who we are is incredibly important. Seeing people in a way that moves us to action in their lives is also very important. But seeing Jesus for who he is is essential. The way we see Jesus matters. And sometimes we have so many other things that we are running to or putting in our eyes, thinking it will help us see clearly, and all it does is mess it up and make it blurry and unclear. Well, this morning we're going to dive back into the Gospel of Luke. You may recall that we left off in April of last year with the end of chapter 6. And we had been walking through the beginnings of Jesus' earthly life. And in early uh, November is when we, of 21 is when we started this series. And we saw him up close and personal all the way through the beginnings of his ministry and his early teachings. But now we're going to pick up in chapter 7 as we look forward. We'll walk with Jesus through many different encounters. Encounters with hurting people. Encounters with needy people. Confused followers. Parables of great significance. His power will be on full display. His glory will be revealed. And then a question will be asked that we all must answer. And the question is, who do you say that I am? So as we enter this series over the next three chapters in the next several weeks, we're going to look at Peter's confession as we kind of build to that point from Luke chapter 9. And here's the context of it. Verse 18 of Luke chapter 9 says, Once when Jesus was praying in private... And his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And then he turns the question and makes it really personal. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. The Christ, the Holy One of God, the Son of God. He got it right. He could see clearly. As we encounter Jesus in these towns and villages where he walked and ministered, he'll invade our hearts and require a response from each one of us. Our answer will require a confident and sincere faith, but not a misplaced faith. Because faith for the sake of faith is unhelpful and sometimes even dangerous. But faith rightly applied to the correct object, and in this case, the right person, Jesus, makes an eternal difference. It does us no good to put lotion in our eyes and claim that we can see. It might feel good at first. It might bring temporary relief, but it won't cause us to see. His question to Peter is personal to us as well. It doesn't matter what they say, what the crowds are buzzing about, what's trending on Twitter, what the water cooler talk is, or what the most acceptable thing to talk about at the family gathering. What matters is who do you say that Jesus is. I want to pray and just ask God and invite him to be in the space to help us to see. So would you join me in prayer just briefly? God, we come to you this morning as we jump into the scriptures, as we look at your word, 
And we ask that you'll help us see you for who you are, that we'll see Jesus, and we'll see his heart, and we'll be more like him. Help us to have eyes to see the heart of Jesus and that we may know him more. And in his name we pray, amen. So anytime that we jump into the Gospels, anytime you're studying or reading through the Gospels, there are three great questions to always keep close to the surface. And they're these. Who is Jesus? We should be asking that. Who is Jesus as I'm reading through it? What did he accomplish? And how do I respond? You take these three questions together and we got a great result. But to ask who Jesus is without connecting it to his accomplishments and his purposes will leave us with an incomplete picture of Jesus without any effect in our lives. To ask what he accomplished without recognizing who he is will leave us with a powerful and influential historical person that we can admire. To ask how do I respond without knowing who Jesus is and what he accomplished might be therapeutic, but it's probably temporary at best. And it, we might help self-help ourselves a little bit for a little while. But we need to ask all three of these. And as we ask each of these questions and gain a full understanding of Jesus through his word, our response becomes one of obedience. Our response becomes relational. And our response is an act of worship. So as I've said, our scripture is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, our hosts will, will bring a Bible to you that you can use to look at. I encourage you, if you have a Bible of your own that you brought, open to Luke chapter 7 as we follow along. And if you don't have a Bible and grab one of these, keep it. We'd love for you to take it with you and keep it. It's our gift to you. But as we walk through Luke chapter 7, we're going to see two distinct stories. And we're going to see two different people that encountered Jesus and one Jesus and then multiple responses that are common to the presence and work of Jesus. See, one of them begins by recognizing that Jesus is worthy, that Jesus has authority and he is Lord. And the second story ends with that same recognition that Jesus must be from God, that Jesus is worthy of praise. It starts with worship, it ends with worship. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have, I mean, well, any Bible, it's going to be about two-thirds of the way through the end. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you're still looking to find it. Um, would you stand with me? We're going to read this together, these 17 verses from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. In honor of the word of God, we stand. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. And there a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And that's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him he said. I tell you I have not found such great faith even in Israel. 
And then the man, the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. We're in verse 12. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. And then he went up and touched the bier. They were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So we see in both of these stories, but starting at the first one, that Jesus responds to us with compassion. He responded to the centurion with compassion. And to the widow, his compassion initiated and his compassion drew a response. So Jesus responds to us with compassion and his compassion draws us to respond. Here's my prayer for our time in the scriptures this morning. That we would truly see the heart of Jesus There are lessons to be learned and there are examples for us to follow, but I don't want us to miss Jesus. As we see these impossible situations, as we attempt to enter into the lives of these hurting people and identify with them in their pain, I pray that we'll see Jesus. We'll see his heart and we'll connect their moments where Jesus has been right with us. We'll connect them to moments that we've had and see that he's right there with us as well. And then we'll leave trusting his heart of compassion for us now and in the suffering that awaits us. Because suffering does await us. As we see these situations, it's a picture that suffering is real. And these people have walked through suffering. And it's one of the last things that we would want to acknowledge. But we live in a world where suffering is common to all of us. It's a common bond that none of us wants to possess. And yet, often we act surprised by suffering. As Paul David Tripp puts it, he said, we live in a culture that canonizes comfort and sees suffering as an interference. But in a sinful, fallen world, our surprise should be that we don't suffer more. Jesus was a fellow sufferer as he put on human flesh. The author of Hebrews tells us that the author of our salvation was made perfect through suffering because he hears us, he sees us, Because he experienced all that we experience in suffering while remaining perfect all the way to death before he was raised to life. Jesus' first encounter in chapter 7 here was this Roman centurion. And we see his marvelous faith and the compassionate response of our gracious Lord. We see a faith that amazed Jesus. He was marveling at the faith of this centurion. And then Jesus responds as Lord in a gracious and compassionate way. Interestingly, this centurion, I don't believe, ever met Jesus personally or had a chance to meet him face to face. The passage doesn't indicate that they ever saw each other. Everything was with a word and from a distance. Hopefully at some point he did get to meet Jesus. But a Roman centurion in that day would have been one of the least likely people to seek out Jesus and especially to have a team of Jewish friends vouching for his character. See, he was a man of authority. 
He was a man who represented all that Israel should despise from their Roman occupants. But this Gentile was different. He had a servant whom he cared for deeply, who he thought highly of, and who was going to die. And these elders of the Jews went to Jesus and pleaded with him to come. They claimed things about the centurion that would have certainly gotten the attention of Jesus because of who they were as messengers and who they were talking about. They claimed that this centurion was deserving, that he loved Israel, and even that he proved it by building a place of worship for them. It was kind of like they were saying, all right, Jesus, this is really weird, but this guy is special. He's different than all the other Roman centurions, and he deserves your help. Please help him. And that got Jesus' attention, and he began to go with him. Do you have friends like this? Do you have friends that surround you in this way, in your times of need? Are you a friend like this? One of my favorite things to do in the wintertime is to drive in the snow. I've talked about my love of snow before. I love it when it snows and the weather is at its worst. I want to go and be in it. I want to experience it. I'm the first to volunteer. Do we need anything from the store? Is there an errand that I can run? Because I want an excuse to get out and drive in the snow. It's one of my favorite things to do. I enjoy the challenge that it takes and the attention I must have, that I have to pay in driving. You know what it's like. We drive and it's kind of like autopilot sometimes you get somewhere and you're like I don't even remember getting there I don't even have to think about it anymore I just drive but when you're driving in the snow you've got to be fully aware fully engaged looking around at other people but then also paying attention as you drive to make sure that you're in control and that I just enjoy I enjoy that challenge well last winter as I was coming down 23 one of our worst snowstorms of last year I'm coming down 23 into Worthington. You know that area where 270 meets 23, where, you know, what, five, 10 years ago, they blew up the whole thing and dug a tunnel and made all kinds of different exit ramps. And if you're not familiar with that area, it can get a little confusing because you're just coming south on 23, there's options for you. And those options are stay straight, but to go straight on 23, you got to get to the far left. And if you want to go west, you've got to get to the far right, and that'll take you west on 270 or to 315. And if you want to go east, you've got to get in that center lane, and that center lane will take you then east. But if you don't decide ahead of time what you're going to do, you can't make a last-minute decision there. The reason is, is because in this construction, they built like a curb that runs to divide the lanes. It's not just lines where you can like at the last second go, woo, I'm in. It's... And there's a curb. And so you have to decide, am I getting on 270 or am I going straight? And if you're straight and decided 270, it's, it's too late. And this curb, the way they build it, it's not just like this curb-like divider. It kind of ramps into it a little bit. Now imagine this. In the snow and in this storm, you can't see lines anyway because the road is covered and there are piles of slush and, and new tracks and route, ruts and Really, people make new lanes when there's snow, and you can't really follow the old lines. But in this area, I'm approaching this area, and I see a car sitting right in the middle of two lanes up ahead of me. And as I'm coming up this, I realize there is a car that has straddled this curb and is now resting some 20 yards up on this curb, and you can't go to the right or the left, and you're just stuck. And I think as it ramped up, it got to the point where she wasn't able, this driver wasn't even able to get anywhere or to back up. Um, it, was, it was tricky. But as I approached this 
person, I imagine like the sinking feeling this person probably had sitting in their car, feeling trapped. Whether you've ever been the person stuck like that or similar, you can, you can imagine the feeling. You're helpless, everybody's watching you, everybody's looking at you, everybody's wondering why you did such a stupid thing, and, and you're trapped and you're helpless and you're alone. So I think this centurion probably had these similar kind of feelings. Here is a man of authority and a man of power and somebody is dying and he can't do anything about it. He can't fix this situation. He had all of the power and someone was dying, but he did have friends. And he had a crew of people who cared for him. So as, as this woman in this car was stuck at the interchange, literally wedged on the curb with no way out, as I approached, I saw a truck that had stopped in the middle of the lane over to the right. And three men were running toward her car. And as I got there, I thought, well, let's make this happen. I stopped right in the middle of my lane. Everybody's going super slow. It didn't really matter that much. Um, and so I got out and helped these other three guys. And we began to push this car backwards. She put her window down. You could tell that she was feeling a mixture of embarrassment, fear, relief, some hope as we're there. And so we're saying, back up, you know, put it in reverse. And instead, she steps on the brake. No, <laughs> that doesn't help. I'm like, put it in reverse so that as we start to push, you can give it a little bit of gas. And once you get some traction, you can help us push as well. And so we push. And as we get her off, we get her back. Um, she gets free. And... Well, now we're in the middle of the road. We don't have time to stand around and chit-chat and figure out what just, how are you feeling? Are you okay? And all of that. She was free and ready to go and move past this embarrassing situation. And we had to get our cars because we're sitting in the middle of the track. So we were like, hey, good work, guys. And we ran and we got in our cars and off we went. But we weren't her friends, but we surrounded her in a time of need, in a time of despair. When you get stuck, do you have friends like this? that'll come around you? Are you a friend like this? That's, that's what our church is for. That's who we are as the body of Christ, as a gathered body of believers. We're committed to one another. Do we carry the burdens of one another? See, this centurion had friends who were willing to fight for him. He had friends that were willing to come alongside. I'd, I'd love to hear this woman stories that she tells of that encounter and what she had to tell about. People just showed up out of nowhere and pushed me out. It was amazing. And I could forget about it and it was all over. But what else made this centurion in chapter 7 <clears throat> so remarkable was, was not the resume that he had or the personal spin that his friends presented to Jesus, but rather his own words delivered through a second set of friends who were fighting for him. You see, this centurion feared God. He referred to him as Lord. And these friends, as he addressed through them Jesus, he contrasts what the elders of the Jews had to say through his humility. They said he's deserving. And he said, I'm not deserving. I am unworthy even to have you come under my roof. Even in his high position, he didn't consider himself worthy of Jesus. And most remarkably, though, he recognized that Jesus had the authority to heal with his powerful word. And it says that Jesus heard him. He heard him. He heard what he was saying. He identified with him. He heard him. Verse 9 says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then Jesus responded to him with compassion. He was amazed and marveled at his faith. 
A faith that likely wasn't saving faith yet, but a faith that trusted and a faith that stood high above those who should have had the greatest faith. This centurion realized that Jesus had the power over life and death and that a person with the healing power of a word must be divine. With the word of God in our hands, and we have it, we have it accessible to us. Do we have this kind of faith? Do we know the heart of Jesus like this man did? There's only one other time in the Gospels that Jesus is amazed at something or marvels at something. It's the faith of this Gentile centurion and the lack of faith displayed by those in his hometown, the people who were closest to Jesus and should have had the most faith. The next thing that happens, though, is Jesus shows him grace. Can you imagine the joy of these friends as we enter into this situation? The joy of these friends and servants when they return to the house to find the sick and, and dying servant alive and well? Can you imagine the centurion waiting patiently and expectantly at home to realize that just the moment his friends got to Jesus and started that conversation, his servant popped up alive and healthy and healed and well? He is experiencing a miracle. What a joy to see. If his faith wasn't saving faith, it, it couldn't have been too far off. But in these impossible situations in life, trust Jesus. Trust him. Trust his heart. With this Roman centurion, Jesus responded with compassion. But in the next interaction with the, with the woman who lost her son, his compassion draws a response. So we see our compassionate Lord leading to a remarkable response. Jesus is compassionate, and while on the first account he responded, here a response comes from him, or comes because of him. In the second encounter, we see Jesus and his crowd of followers visiting a nearby town, and as they approach, it is Jesus who initiates with compassion. Jesus heard the cries of the hurting centurion, but here he sees the pain of a grieving mother, and his heart is broken, with compassion. Picture this scene with me. Enter, try to enter into this. There's a funeral procession coming out of the town. A dead son is being carried by a crowd of mourners. It's a moving scene. It's one of finality. It's a scene of brokenness. A scene of unmet promises. Because here lies the only son of a grieving widow. And Jesus' heart is moved. In the darkest moment of this woman's life, a moment of despair and an uncertain future. She was not left alone. I think that's a beautiful thing about this picture. Coming from the depths of the ugliest agony, and much like the Roman centurion who had friends fighting for him, this widow was surrounded by a community, by a town, by her people who grieved with her, who mourned with her, this woman is no longer married and now no longer with a son to care for her future. And the community walked with her in her deepest valley. Some of you have walked this path before. And as you read this encounter in Luke 7, it takes you back to maybe the greatest pain that you've ever had to walk through. I pray that you didn't have to walk through it alone. And if you ever come to this situation or this kind of suffering, I pray that you don't walk alone, that that's what this church family is for, to walk with you. There was an author, writer, Joseph Bailey, who had lost three children at a young age. 
And he wrote about this pain that I think helps us identify with it for those that haven't experienced it. Of all the deaths, he says, that of a child is the most unnatural and hardest to bear. He quotes another author and says it is the period placed before the end of a sentence. Sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun. We expect the old to die. The separation is always difficult, but it doesn't come as a surprise. But the child, the youth, life lies ahead with its beauty, its wonder, and its potential. I want us to feel what she was feeling in this moment. But see, when Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her. He felt what she was feeling. His heart going out to her feels a little bit too soft of a response, but it's compassion. And in reality, Luke is using a word with the strongest sense of pity that one could feel. It's the kind of compassion that flows from a deep emotion that carries with it a physical effect. It means that you feel it deep down inside, in your bowels, in your heart, in your lungs, in your kidneys, in your liver, which is where, in those days, the center of human emotion It's John Calvin said, Christ put on our feelings as well as our flesh. He identified with us. In John chapter 11, when Jesus came to Mary and Martha, grieving the death of their brother Lazarus, he was moved in a similar way. He was deeply moved, it says, in spirit and troubled. The word translated deeply moved describes a horse's snorting. In other words, quite literally, Jesus let out an involuntary gasp. His breath went out from him. As he saw this scene, he saw this woman in her pain, in her despair. He felt it. Now, Jesus spoke to her and and broke the basic rules that we would give for how to comfort somebody. He said, don't cry. I don't think he said it quite like that. Don't cry. I don't think he was telling her she's not allowed to grieve or she's not allowed to cry. But what he was saying was, your crying is going to cease. Because he could do this. He wasn't condemning her grief, but rather going to redeem it. He was about to do what was impossible for humans to do by bringing life from death, demonstrating his divine power. And she didn't know it in that moment, but her greatest grief would soon be met with her greatest joy. Time now stood still. Jesus approached and touched the bier, which is a sort of open coffin, like a stretcher. Now, touching the coffin would break the Old Testament laws of ceremonial cleanliness. But this was Jesus. He was not subject to contamination. But he was the cure that brought life and purity to that which was unclean. And in this moment, when time stood still, life and death faced off. And death was swallowed up in victory. As Jesus spoke a word to this young man, the young man heard Jesus. He was dead, but he heard Jesus. The dead man could hear because life is not in the body, but in the spirit. And the powerful word of Jesus called him back. And as the young man sat up, he began to talk. Oh, to hear the stories that this young man would tell would have been incredible. And I kind of wish Luke had recorded that so we could hear it. But I don't think those words mattered to the mother. What he had to say wasn't as important that now her future is restored. Her hope was rekindled. Her beloved son was now alive. She maybe didn't even hear the words he was saying. But then the crowd, they all responded in the most remarkable way. 
They were seized with fear. That's understandable. They just saw a dead man come back to life. They were filled with awe. And then they worshiped. They might not have recognized that Jesus was God in the flesh. They might not have recognized that Jesus was the one who would one day die to redeem them from a death more deadly than this boy had experienced. They had not connected the dots probably that Jesus would forgive their sins and offer eternal hope beyond the grave. And that this miracle worker who stood before them would himself experience a death that wasn't final when he would raise from the grave on the third day. But what they did recognize was something amazing that was happening before their eyes. They recognized that Jesus was certainly no less than a prophet and that through the works of Jesus, God saw and God had come to help his people. More than likely, they would have connected the dots to the prophet Elijah. From 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah had visited another small town. And he had encountered another widow who had lost her only son to death. And Elijah called on the Lord to give life to this child. And he, like Jesus, delivered the son alive back to his mother. They would have known this story. They would have recognized what is happening. Not only did the town praise God, but they also couldn't keep the news, this good news to themselves. It was the natural overflow of their hearts to go and spread the news and to tell people what had just happened. News traveled from the smallest of towns, from the most humble of circumstances throughout Judea and into the surrounding country. It's in these stories, in these stories in chapter 7 and some of the stories to come, that we'll see hints along the way that lead to Peter's confession of Christ in chapter 9. His first response will confirm that some say Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets come back from the dead. It's exactly what these people in this town were thinking. But the question for Peter and for us is far more personal. Who do you say that I am? When we see the compassion of Jesus, what is our response to that question? When we know that he hears our cries and enters our brokenness, do we recognize his deep love for us? When we experience the kindness of the Lord and see the pain, when we see the kindness of the Lord as he sees our pain, as he mends our brokenness, do we trust his heart? When you look for hope in the most hopeless of situations, are your eyes cloudy? Because you put your faith in something or someone other than Jesus? Do you see clearly to see Jesus and to see needs and to see compassion and to see his heart? Or is it cluttered up and blurred by other things? We sang these truths early in our service that no one else can satisfy but Jesus. And this should be our response. The song Jesus Strong and Kind says that Jesus said, if I thirst... I should come to him. No one else can satisfy. I should come to him. Jesus said, if I am weak, I should come to him. No one else can be my strength. I should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. And I don't know if you caught this as we sang that song. All of these come to Jesus, come to Jesus. But when we're lost, he says he will come to us. 
he will initiate in his compassion, in his heart for our brokenness. He will come to us. So how do you see Jesus? He hears us. He hears our cries. And he responds to us with compassion. He sees us. He not only hears us, he sees us and shows us compassion when our hearts are broken. How will we respond? I believe our biggest obstacle to responding with compassion is that our eyes are often fixed on ourselves and not on other people. May God give us eyes to see and a compassionate heart like Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, I ask that you help us to see. Help us to see what we can't see right now on our own. May we sing your praises when we can't make sense of our pain. May we see through our blurred vision to see you clearly. And when we can't see clearly, will you surround us with those who can see clearly? Will you put people in our place, friends, family, the body of Christ, who will help us see clearly as we fix our eyes on Jesus? Thank you for the the people in these stories who got to experience Jesus that help us experience Jesus. Help us to know him. Help us to love him and help our hearts to respond. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.